If you haven't noticed, uh, this has been an unusual year. I mean, not as unusual as that video, but an unusual year. Um, if you don't know, uh, Tuesday, by the way, is election day. Did you guys hear anything about that? Yeah, maybe a little bit. You know, my favorite thing is, is November 4th, because uh, that's the day after election day. And then we get a whole week usually before the next election season. So that's always good. One week to sort of, you know, this year I'm not so sure. Hey, I encourage you oh, to get out and vote. Uh, I was praying for a couple people groups this morning, sort of I'm in the habit of new in the morning, and I know both of those groups don't have an availability to vote like we do. So if you haven't, get out there and vote. And then let me just share a little, little news with you in case you haven't figured it out yet. No matter who wins, God's still on the throne. You guys realize that? Oh, come on now. You guys are going to want to get to lunch at some point, so, you know, at least show me you got that. And so whether the person you vote for wins or not, I just want to let you know that God still has a plan. He has a plan for you and that his peace is just as, as real as ever and that, in all honesty, our, our, our area needs the peace of God more than ever. And, and we get to bring that to them. And, and I'm so excited that we're where we are in the book of Romans right now because it speaks of what does it mean to be united with Christ? Like, what's it mean to be in harmony with him? When I think of harmony, I think of just, just the whole definition of the word. You know, but you have these chords coming together to make music. And, and there's this alignment that we're called to have with the Lord. Now, let's, let's step back a minute. Now, I, Romans 1 through 4, so we're looking at Romans 1 through 8. Romans 1 through 4, if you remember, talks about the very first facet, if you will, of salvation, justification. What, what's that mean? It means we're made right with God, that when we enter into a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, resurrected for our salvation, that we're made right with God that the wage of sin has been paid, and that we can live in freedom. Paul, in chapter 5 that we began last week looking at, uh, begins to make a transition. He talks about the second facet, if you will, of salvation, which is sanctification. And, and in chapter 5, Paul changes even the direction of who he's speaking to. So on 1 through 4, he uses a lot of language that would make us understand that he's really just sharing the gospel, that if someone is yet to enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He's directly speaking to them. In chapter 5, the way that he words things, it makes it very clear that he's speaking to those who are in Jesus. So he just assumes he's writing to a believer. And that doesn't mean that if you're not a believer this morning, but the, that the word isn't for you this morning. It just simply means he reads sort of, he writes so that when we read it, we need to understand he's writing as if we are believers. And later, at the end of chapter 8, starting at about verse 18, Paul will write about glorification, which is the third facet of salvation. That's when Jesus returns. And so Paul's really answering a very important question from 5 all the way through to the first part of chapter 8, and that's, okay, if we're in Christ, now what? Now what? Because the great tragedy is that many a person has come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, they've received this first facet of salvation, justification, and then just went on with life as normal, as if there were no change, as if there were no hope. Others have been very frustrated because they thought when they came to Christ that they were going to automatically be in the third facet, glorification, where everything is good. It's paradise, right, when Jesus returns. And if you haven't noticed, you're not in stage three yet. Come on. Yeah, that third facet hasn't happened yet because you're taking, you're still breathing. And, and, and so we're right in the midst. We're right in this second facet, sanctification, which is being set apart for God and becoming more and more and more like Jesus. 
And so Paul's going to ask two hypothetical questions. The first he's going to answer is this. Should we keep on sinning so God can show us more and more his kindness and forgiveness? Like that was a question he was hearing. That if, there's a, if, if God's grace abounds all the more where sin is, then maybe we should just keep sinning. Like do a lot of it so we can receive a lot of God's love. And he's going to answer that, by the way, with a simple word, no. But then the second hypothetical question he answers is this. Since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sin? So he's really talking about in the sanctification process, becoming more and more like Jesus, what place does sin play and what place does God's grace play now that we are in Christ, now that we're united with him? And he really shares with us two illustrations. The first is that of baptism. And Paul shows us, he, he says, Baptism demonstrates that the believer has unity with Christ's death and resurrection. So let's jump right in. Romans chapter 6. Let's look at the first couple of verses to start us out. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, he says. How can we who died to sin still live in it? There's no doubt that no matter how great humanity's sin is, that God's grace is bigger. There's, there's no doubt. Nevertheless, we ought not to continue in sin because God's grace is so great. That, that, that God's gift of salvation is designed to give us power over the power of sin. That sin doesn't have to rule over us anymore. After all, we died to sin. We, we can't live to that same sin we've died to. Now, we're going to unpack this. So if you're sitting there saying, well, I'm not perfect. What does this mean for me? None of us are perfect. It means a lot to us, okay? So stick with Paul and stick with me this morning. But remember this, Adam sinned and humanity died. We looked at this last week in chapter 5. Christ died and humanity, those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, are made alive. In essence, Paul is declaring that, that something has radically happened in the life of a believer. That when they're justified before God and they're entering into this, this second facet of salvation, sanctification, becoming more and more and more like Jesus, but it's not just a positional thing. There's some practical realities to it. This is why Jesus, in Matthew 16, 24, his words are, are recorded for us. This is what Jesus said to anyone who wants to follow him. He says, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must put aside your selfish ambition, shoulder your cross, and follow me. There's something practical there. there there's, there's movement. So we read this in verse 3. Do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So the moment we said yes to Jesus, the moment that, that we were justified and, and Jesus' death on the cross, his finished work on the cross, covered the payment of our sins and we were made right with God and we entered into the second facet of salvation, which is what? Sanctification. We were baptized by the Spirit into the very death of Christ. Now, we'll, we'll unpack that for a minute, but just think about it, that, that, that we're able to stand here in this second facet of salvation because of really two historical moments. The first is that Jesus did indeed die on the cross. That God sent his only son, right? That he died on the cross for our sins in our stead. We call it the uh, a substitutional atonement. He died in our place. And then the second act is that at a point in history, we accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord of our life. 
And at that moment, when we accepted Christ as Savior, we were baptized by the Holy Spirit into his death. Now, now stay with Paul here. He writes in verses 4 and 5. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now we see this especially in, in the symbolism of, of water baptism. You've been around here for a while. We, we, we do baptisms, water baptism, and there's, there's great imagery in water baptism. A person comes into the water and when they go into the water, it represents their old self dying with Christ. They identify with the death of Christ. He died on the cross for their sins. And it's that old self dying with Christ. And when they come out of the water and we celebrate, it celebrates what? Their identification, his resurrection. But they're now a new person in Christ. And that's true for every single believer. We don't just die in order to die. Isn't that good news? We die in order to live. We're alive today in Jesus Christ. And Jesus didn't just die on the cross in order to die on the cross. Jesus died that we might be redeemed. And likewise, we're not called upon to die in order to be dead. We're called upon to die then to identify in being alive in Jesus. In fact, when Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says, listen, some people were saying it's not really all that important if Jesus is still alive. That's what they were teaching. As long as he died for us, that's all that matters. Paul says, listen, if he died for us but isn't alive, then we are to be pitied among everyone else. We're like pitied more than anyone else in the world because our faith is useless. That, that Jesus dying for us is important. He died for our sins. Praise the Lord. But if that's it, then we're worshiping a dead Savior who can do nothing for us. But Jesus was resurrected, and we're alive in him. So the, the penalty of sin was paid for. The power of sin was crushed. We died with Christ so that we can live in the power of Christ. We can actually be alive. We can actually walk with him. Francis Schaeffer explains it this way. He says, Jesus has risen from the dead in space and time and history. Fact, right? That's what he's saying. And now we, on the basis of this, having been baptized into his death, may walk in newness of life in space and time and history. This is key to the Christian life, key to the Christian life. And since we've identified with the death of Christ and, and the payment for our sin has been, has been made, we've been made right before God, justified, the first facet of salvation, then in the second facet of salvation and sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus, we get to live in freedom freedom. So Paul continues. Look at verses 6 to 11. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. 
So Paul is constantly reminding us of what happened in our lives, Romans chapter 1 through 4, because that's the basis of what the Holy Spirit is doing in our life, chapters 5 through the first part of of chapter 8, the sanctification process being made more and more into Jesus. So he says, remember, when you were in Adam, you were dead. But now that you're in Christ, you are alive. But there's real power. Now, let's back step here a minute. Let's just take a step back, and, and, and because it's so important. This verse sometimes has been misunderstood. And it's been misunderstood to say that if you're a believer, you no longer have the power to sin. Some people have taught that even. But the, it certainly doesn't say that the ability to sin for a believer is eradicated. That, by the way, will happen when we get the third facet of salvation, glorification. Isn't that great? The struggle's done in this one. Like, that's our hope. That's what's to come. When I say hope, I mean a sure thing. When we see Jesus face to face, we will become like him. We, will, we won't become God-like. We'll become fully human as Adam and Eve were in the garden before the fall. We won't be struggling with temptation and those things. But nowhere in Scripture does it say that a believer's ability to sin is eradicated this side of paradise. But what then are we released from? We're released from the penalty of sin, which is death, and we're released from the power of sin. In other words, we're really given the ability to become more and more like Jesus. Now, you may be sitting there and saying, well, you haven't seen my journey. You may be sitting there saying, the things I want to do, I have such a hard time doing. And the things I don't want to do, they're so much easier to do. And and I just want to say with you, stick with me. We're going to look at that. Paul directly deals with that issue in in Romans chapter 7. By far my favorite chapter in all of Scripture to teach and preach from. So we'll be looking at that next week. If you want to know the answer, you can read ahead. We're at the end of Romans 7. But we're going to look at that next week. But for now in chapter 6, Paul just wants us to understand that the old self is still in play, that it's dead but it's not completely abolished, that that part of us won't be completely done away with until the third facet, glorification, when we die or Christ comes back. When that occurs, then it's all over as far as the struggle with sin. But still, as a a believer being sanctified, we still struggle with temptation. But the possibility of living a Christ-like life is possible because of the Holy Spirit's power that exists within us. See, both the death and resurrection of Jesus were decisive events. Christ died to sin once and for all. He lives continuously unto God. And just as Jesus was raised from the dead, we're raised into this new spiritual life. So we're to die to self. We're to die to self and let the very power of God rule in us. Think of it this way. At a point in history, Jesus was resurrected. At a point in history, we accept Christ as Lord and Savior. At at a point in the future, a real point in the future, we will be raised from the dead. And so Paul says, between this facet and this facet, the facet we're in, scientific, he says, now live like it. Live like people who know God have been made right with him. Live like people who are being made more and more into the image of Christ and live like people, most of all, who have a sure hope that victory is ours. Just as Jesus reigned over the grave, we're going to share completely in his victory when we die and he returns. Jesus died for our sins, was resurrected, 
for our salvation. Think about that. So he says baptism is, is a symbol. It's, it's, it's that we understand we've been baptized into the death of Christ. Our, our sins have been paid for. The power and penalty of sin are no longer in play in our life. But it, it, it also speaks of, of the freedom we have because we're alive in Jesus. And his spirit has the power to, to, to help us walk like he would have us walk and to get over the struggles and to stand back up when we see ourselves falling down. Then he moves on to another imagery. He says, not only is baptism a great illustration of being united with Christ, he says, so too is slavery. In fact, slavery demonstrates that the believer being enslaved to God brings true freedom, not bondage. Things can get confusing in church. Like you can be struggling with something and people pray over you and they pray things like, hold on, let go, hold on, let go. Like, am I supposed to hold on or am I supposed to let go? And one of the interesting ironies of the Christian faith is that slavery to God brings freedom. It's not how we normally look at slavery. But Paul's going to unpack it for us. And so it's a little lengthy passage, so I'm going to have it read for us. We can look up at the screen. We'll follow along together. Romans 6, 12 through 23. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, You are slaves to the one you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard of righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's an amazing passage. Uh, for Paul, the Christian life is not a life of independence. And I think sometimes that, that, that believers think that, that, that because they've been set free, they are able to live like this independent life. And, and yet the scripture teaches us that we're, we're, we're actually we're actually slaves of God, that God becomes our master. And, and, and the scripture tells us what, Romans 6.23, one of those hinge verses again. And, and remember, I call a hinge verse a verse where much theology is sort of built off of. In, in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The former master we had sin simply gave us the wage, what we earned, and that's death. Our, our new master 
God gives us a gift. Not something we earn, something he gives out of love, and, and, and that's life. See, there's two different ways to understand this, this struggle that we have in this midst of sanctification. You might have heard me say before, sanctification is a messy process. Not messy because of God, messy because of us. Our, our journey doesn't always just go like this. Have you found that to be true? It sort of has this type of, it, it, it can be a little messy, but, but understand this. When we talk about becoming more like Jesus, where the penalty and power of sin is no longer in play, and yet we're still tempted. But there's a real difference between temptation and sin. You realize that, don't you? In fact, Paul writes to the Corinthians again. He says, listen, he says, we've all been tempted in similar ways. In fact, no temptation has seized us except that which is common to everyone. But God is faithful. He will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear, but when we are tempted, we're given the ability to stand up under it. And so we can stand up against temptation. We can be victorious. And however, here's the second thing we need to understand. There's a difference between not being perfect in this present life and letting sin rule our life. Because I know what you're thinking. It's the same thing that the first readers of Paul's letter were thinking. And they're reading this. And they're like, I don't want sin to, to enter into my life. I don't want to sin anymore. And yet it's still, it's still there. It's still in play. The old self is still in play. And so I'm not perfect, maybe you're sitting there saying. And I want to say, if you know you're not perfect, that's a good first step. Because none of us are perfect. And if you're sitting here this morning, you think you're perfect. You're not. None of us are perfect. But there's a difference between not being perfect and choosing to let God rule over our life. To know there are times where we come to him, 1 John 1, 9, and, and confess our sins, and we find that God is, is faithful and just and forgives us our sins. Still, right? He's a good God, a loving God. But he has the power to make us more and more like Jesus. And Paul doesn't want us to lose sight of that. See, here, here's, here's the human inclination is to go, well, I'm not perfect, so why try? Or, or, or Here's one that he's dealing with directly. God is a loving God, so what's it matter? I'm already covered with that anyway. And neither is the way that someone who is in a relationship with God and loves him would walk. But there's hope and power in Jesus. One of the things I love about Celebrate Recovery, a a powerful ministry that occurs here through, through Crosswinds, is that there's victory taught for those who are dealing with hurts and habits and hang-ups. You know, God meets us where we're at, but he says, don't stay there. Come on a journey with me. Become more like Jesus and do it in freedom. Not out of, not out of burden, not out of, out of condemnation, which we'll look at in Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation for those in Christ. We don't have to fear punishment. Jesus already paid for that. We get to walk in freedom living as instruments of God. See, here's the reality. We're all a slave to someone. We may not like it, but it's true. We're either a slave to sin, which is what we were when we were in Adam, or a slave to God, which is what we are in Christ. It's our only choice. And if we choose to live independently, we've made our choice and we're in Adam living. And Paul is saying, here's the tragedy. There are still those who are in Christ who are living as if they're in Adam. They're they're still trying to earn their salvation. They're still trying to 
think that, that becoming like Jesus is just about working harder? Paul says, no, no, no. It's about yielding to God. It's about giving yourself to him, knowing, knowing that your sins have already been covered, that, that, that you're justified, you're made right with God, knowing that one day you're going to be glorified and, 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 and the work's going to be perfected in you. But today, today, you're being sanctified. A messy, glorious process where God washes his love over you, his forgiveness over you, and empowers you to not remain where you were, but to become who you've been created to be. We ought to live as slaves to God, making a Christ-like impact on, on the world around us. We've been freed from the power of sin. In a real sense, this, this, this is so practical in our daily living. Being slaves of God is not merely positional. It's quite practical. It has a role in our daily lives. And again, I think sometimes as believers, we can confuse each other on this. Because yielding to God isn't a passive thing. It's really a daily thing. And sometimes, multiple times throughout the day, where we say, Lord, I give you the bad in my life. And we were all equipped to do that when we came to him. But we continue to do that. Our, our walk with God is from faith when we're justified, is from faith when we're sanctified. It'll be faith all the way into glory when we're glorified and become fully what he's created us to be. It, it's a journey of faith. It's a journey of trust. And, and it's a journey of, of yielding. You know, there's three ways that we can respond to God. God can call us to do something. And our first response can be simply, I'm not going to do it. Ever been there? Come on now. I'm not going to do it. You might not have been that bold with it. You may have said, sure, I'll do it, Lord, and then you just didn't do it. But I'm not going to do it. The second one is just as dangerous. And that's, I'll do it, Lord, but I'll do it in my own strength. I'll do it in my, I got this one. Lord, I know you're so busy. This is right within my gift mix. I'll do this one. That's a dangerous thing. The third option, the right option, is, Lord, you've called me to this, and I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it in your strength and leading. How many of you have been called outside your comfort zone by God? My guess is when you're called outside that comfort zone, you feel a great dependence on the Lord. <laughs> like we have many, many conversations throughout the day, and many of them we just take for granted are going to go well. But what about that one conversation you know is coming with somebody that you know is going to be difficult? How dependent upon God do you feel for that conversation? And what the scripture tells us is, man, if we can just understand, we're dependent on God for every conversation. We give him the good in our life. We, we give him the bad in our life. We, we, we trust in him. The command to yield ought to, ought to really be considered as, as a privilege and a joy. That's why Paul's able to write that I count it pure joy, basically, to be a slave to God because there's freedom in that. Christian service is accomplished only when really we understand that, that we're going we're gonna to die to both the good and the bad. We're going to yield them both to God and let him lead us. I really believe in, 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 in serving within our gifts and our abilities and our passion. In fact, we have a test online you can take to help you sort of know where your, your little niche is in the kingdom of God. But, but I just want to tell you, even in that, sometimes I wonder if we do a disservice to some people. You say, what are you talking about? 
We hear someone singing and we think they have a beautiful singing voice and we go, it would be a sin if you didn't use that singing voice for God. And I just wonder, maybe that's between them and God. What do you think? What if God calls them for a season not to use it and do something else? Is that okay with you? Think about it. In the Billy Graham crusade, when Billy Graham was, was alive and preaching, uh, he had uh, over a dozen of some of the greatest communicators in the world serving in that ministry, and they weren't communicating. They weren't preachers. He was the main preacher. And one of them was asked one time, they said, you're a great preacher. We've heard you speak. In fact, the person who interviewed said, I believe that you're even a greater speaker than Billy Graham. Why aren't you speaking? And he said, simply because God has called me to this position. And by the way, success every day is not to do what the people around you want you to do. Success every day is simply to do what God calls you to do. And could it be at times that maybe our most giftedness needs to be surrendered, for God, surrendered to God, and maybe for a time he may call us to yield that to him and serve us somewhere else. There are times when I am not up here and, and so I don't have the preaching responsibilities for the weekend and I have the blessing to actually sit where you are and and have one of our other pastors preach amazing messages and learn from them. And, and typically on some of those weekends, I'll hear that there's an opening in the children's ministry. And, and they'll say there's, they need a nursery worker. And I'll say, well, I'll, I'll do that. Now, by the way, I don't have a gift of nursery. You know what I mean? Like, like this right here doesn't intimidate me. Put me in front of a bunch of children and, and have me speak to them. And that, I talk about dependence. I'm like, oh, Lord Jesus, you know, help me. When my wife was in a Christian school, they asked if I would do chapel for the little kids, and they had me do it once. Once. And I'll tell you what, give me junior hires, senior hires, adults. But man, you give me those. But you know what? I did it. You know why? Because God said, I want you to do that. And I don't know if maybe he did to teach me humility. Trust me, I was humiliated. But it doesn't really matter. You yield to him. You yield to him. I had a friend who was once given an opportunity to speak at a conference. He never had the opportunity before, and he had been praying many times. He'd been praying, Lord, you know, help me, help me do this well. Help me represent you well. May it go well. And then one day it hit him. What if the Lord wanted to use it to show the world humility? Like he got up there and he bombed it. Like, you know, like God's like, I'm just, I'm just going to teach people what's okay. And he said, that's true, Lord. If that's what you want to do, you can do that. And he said, but Lord, please make it successful. Help me. Have you ever prayed and, and gave God all the suggestions in the world and then you throw out the clause, but your will be done? Your will be done. Yielding is, is saying, Lord, no, really, your, your will be done. How many times have you thought you failed only later to find out that God has used it to do a greater good? How many times have you left a conversation God led you to be a part of and you thought that conversation didn't go real well only later to realize that God used that conversation as a, 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 as a, as a point in that person's life to, to advance in their relationship with him? How many times have you shared the gospel and thought, well, I just totally fumbled that thing. And later you realize that God just wanted you to step out, trust, and believe. It's interesting. Paul reminds us, Paul reminds us that we are saved not by works, but through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's verse 23. Why? Because this chapter and his teaching on sanctification from Romans 5 to this first part of, of chapter 8, it's not meant to be there to 
for us to question our salvation. It's not meant to be there to say, man, if I'm not totally measuring up here, as if it's all based upon us, then man, do I really know Jesus? That's not what he's saying. He's writing to those who he says are believers. But he's saying, listen, you are going to have a rougher time in this life if you still try to do it on your own, if you still try to live the way you always lived, if you don't believe you have any power, if you believe this isn't by faith from beginning to end, it's going to be a difficult journey for you. Paul says there's a better way. Understand that you have died with Christ. The, the penalty and power of sin have been taken care of, but you're also alive in Christ, that you're living today, and that as his slave, he doesn't give you the wage what you earned is death. He gives you the gift of life and power and freedom. So I ask you this morning, are you united with Christ? Do you know him as your Lord and Savior? And if not, then in just a moment, well, won't you consider receiving Christ as your Lord and Savior? But believer, look at me. Are you united with Christ? And here's the answer. If you're in Christ, the answer is yes. So the real question is, if you're united with Christ, live like it. Walk in his freedom. Let his power begin to shine through you. Believe. Believe. The victory is already yours. We're just waiting. But no, the old stuff's still in play. Paul says, you're in Christ now. And if our world ever needed to see people in Christ, it's today. And as we gather here this morning, we understand we're going to scatter in a minute all throughout this region. And there are people in unrest because of masks, work, you fill in the blank. There's people in unrest because of an election. But I am in Christ. I am free. My future is secure. It makes all the difference in the world. Church, let's take his peace, his power, and his message to the world around us. But let it begin by us realizing we're in Christ. Father God, thank you so much for, for loving us so profoundly that you sent your son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins and be resurrected for our salvation. I pray, Father, if there's anyone in here this morning who's yet to receive you as Lord and Savior, that they will do so even now, that you love them. The circumstances of their life may be crazy, but they may not be able to sense your love right now. They may not be able to feel your love right now, but I pray that as they look at the, the proof of your love, Jesus, who died on the cross, was erected for, for life, for us to have life in you. But Lord, they would just receive you, receive your love, receive that relationship. Father, as we're standing then as believers between what we were and what's yet to come when you come back, I pray that we'd be found united in you, that we'd be in harmony with your spirit, that, Lord, we would live in alignment with you, and, Lord, that we wouldn't live under condemnation, that we wouldn't live under fear, that we wouldn't try to make the sanctification thing a, a, a thing of, a, of your accepting us. We're accepted in Christ, but we would make it a thing of love. I want to become more like Jesus. I want to get a foretaste of that victory that awaits us when Christ returns. 
So, Lord, would you help us yield? Yield to you, live as those united in you, so that the world around us can see the peace, the hope, the love, the power of those who are redeemed by you. That they would hunger, that they would come to know you. Lord, thank you for loving us so extravagantly, for the blessing of coming here together this morning to put your glory on display, and then to walk out scattering throughout this region in your name.